know about you guys, but that music, be still, know that he's God. Sometimes we need that reminder. Because if you get in a busy rat race of life, always going, sometimes it, it's good to take a moment to know that no matter how crazy life gets, there's still one on the throne. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you're good and that you're glorious and that you command the future of our universe, the future of the United States, every country on planet Earth in the palm of your hands. And we thank you that individually our own lives are in your hand. And God, I thank you that you got a great purpose for each and every one here. And Father, I ask and pray that you would just soothe everyone's heart, Lord, no matter what they came in bringing to church. Help them be able to just lay it at your feet. Casting all our cares upon you because, God, you deeply care for us. Lord, we ask and pray that your Holy Spirit would be present in this place. And that as we study your word, you would speak to our hearts and you would transform our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are starting a new series today called We Have a Dream. And, you know, a lot of times you say, I have a dream, but it's the power of we where people collectively have a dream together. And what we're going to do over the next three Sundays is kind of give you the last three months in a nutshell. We've been studying on Wednesday nights. Um, We've been having discussions about the church and where God wants to take all of us. And many of you have spoken up what's been on your heart. And recently we had a five-hour leadership retreat, and we got to hear from all the leaders in the church, many of them. And... um, So what we're going to do is kind of summarize that into three messages called We Have a Dream, so you can kind of see where the church is going. One of the biggest complaints I've heard throughout my past 18 years in ministry is a lot of people will say, well, I just don't know where the church is going. I don't know what the church's vision. I mean, you've ever thought that before, said that. I mean, we we all want to know where you're going. It's kind of like, have you ever got on a tour bus and you didn't know where the destination was? Wouldn't that be kind of confusing? I just want to be on a bus going somewhere. Well, what if the bus was going to the desert and your vacation was going to be in the desert nowhere and you had to sleep in a tent? Some of you would enjoy that and most of you would be like, you want to know where you're going. So that's what we're going to do over the next three Sundays. So if you're just visiting with us, this is the perfect time to kind of get a pulse of the church and where God's taking us. And over the next three weeks, you'll kind of get a snapshot. So today we're going to talk about having a dream and what that looks like and how the dream should culminate in a mission. And um, this this past Saturday, uh, a group of us had a really good time. We went to the Palisades Apartments just down the road, and uh, we threw a pool party. Did you know that your pastor throws pool parties? So it was was kind of fun. And uh, we had games, and we had limbo. I actually tried the limbo, and... I realized I'm not as flexible as I used to be. I mean, I felt bad because I used to be pretty decent, but now I hit my 30s, I'm not as flexible. And I hear every decade it gets worse. Is that true? I, I don't know if it's true or not, but, um, but there's this one 20-year-old that could basically go under the lowest point you can imagine. And this guy's like 22, 23 years old, and I'm just like, you're making me sick right now. I used to be that. Can't do it anymore. So we had a really good time, and as I was reflecting upon it, As you read through scriptures, you know, what we did is kind of what Jesus did. Um, Jesus was often shown up at parties. You remember his first miracle was when Jesus turned the water into wine, and it was a big wedding party. 
So you see that, and you think about it, making your debut, if you were Jesus, would you make your debut at a wedding? I mean, don't you have greater things like saving people, saving the world, but Jesus took uh, at least a week probably to spend time with family, friends, and just love on people. Uh, We see Jesus hanging out with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and hanging out in, in that household in Luke 10. And this passage in Matthew 9, if you have your Bibles, we're going to see how Jesus was a part of an unusual party that would make many of us present today very uncomfortable. Jesus had a knack for showing up at places where people were very much unlike him, and he had an amazing ability to draw people to him. So we're going to talk about how Jesus shows up, and um, we'll see what happens. So we're going to be in Matthew 9, starting in verse 9. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. Now, how many of you liked, like paying your taxes? Anybody? Unless you're a CPA, you may not like taxes that much, right? So he was sitting at the tax office, and Jesus said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. So this, the modern-day equivalent would be like if someone was sitting at your, work, your workplace, let's say you're a cashier at Walmart, and all of a sudden Jesus is checking out, going through your line, and he says, I want you to quit your job and come follow me. Can you imagine just saying, all right, I'm sorry, Walmart's supposed to be a happy place, but I'm out of here. Um, Jesus had such a compelling nature about him, he could say, follow me, and people would drop everything to follow him. Look at the next verse. Now, it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house. And we see from parallel gospels, this is Matthew's house, who had just, he was formerly known as Levi. He had just accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. So now he's sitting at the table in the house, and it says, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Now, you've got to understand something about tax collectors. In, in today's culture, you may not like the IRS that much, but in the Jewish culture, if you were a tax collector, it was the worst of worse. I mean, you were on the same line as prostitutes. That's, that's how people view tax collectors. So the fact that Jesus is hanging out with, notice it says tax collectors and sinners, um, people, religious people, look at what happens in verse 11. It says, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because in that day, if you were a rabbi, if you were a holy person, you stayed away from sinners. You didn't fraternize or eat with them. Look at the next verse. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of, of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I love how Jesus turns the table on the religious teachers. They're trying to teach Jesus something, and now he's like, let me teach you something. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So from this passage, we get a few snapshots of what it looks like to have a God-sized mission. If you have your worship guide, you can follow along with a listening guide. Number one, a God-sized mission begins with the call to follow Jesus begins with the call to follow Jesus. If you look at verse 9, Matthew's sitting there, and all of a sudden Jesus calls him, and he gets up and he leaves everything. Do you remember when you felt the call to follow Jesus? Do you remember what that looked like, what that felt like? Some of you may have resisted it for a while and eventually gave in. Some of you were more on the sensitive side, and as soon as God knocked on your heart, you, you basically followed him. 
There's different statistics, but basically some people say it takes people at least seven times to hear the gospel before they receive it. So that's a lot of times, right? Seven times over and over. Aren't you glad that God gave you that many chances? Um, you know, it would have been gracious just to get one shot at receiving the gospel, but the fact that many of us had to hear over and over again. And the gospel doesn't just start the moment you receive Christ. It begins because the gospel is not just placing your faith in Christ for salvation, but it's placing your faith in Christ for everyday living. It's placing your faith in Christ for having victory. Uh, this Sunday as I speak to you, I have a little sorrow in my heart because um, my high school teacher that I used to often call, uh, he sat in the middle back there, David Reed, he died on Friday. And I got a phone call saying, uh, Mr. Reed has just, um, he died in the night. And I, it, it brings back memories of him because he was one of my high school mentors. And uh, he had a heart condition. And basically the Lord allowed him to live 15 years past what he was expected to live. And um, he took his heart defibrillator out and basically said, I'm, I'm ready to go whenever the Lord calls me home. We had this conversation just two weeks ago today. Two weeks ago, we were sitting at lunch after church, and he was just sharing. And um, so hearing him talk um, kind of made me think about the calling, because his life, he had many challenges. Uh, he had health issues. He had a lot of church baggage he had to get over. Uh, something he told me was, um, you know, basically, I, I was like, well, what happened to you, Mr. It used to be very, you know, black and white, very hard on people. Now you, you, you love on people. What, what changed? And he said, Timothy, whenever I got this heart condition, uh, God began to change my heart. And he was a phenomenal Christian, all, you know, for most of his life. But he began to have compassion and sympathy, and it grew and grew. And as he sat here, he was a different man than I even knew in high school. He was a great man then, but now he was just so full of love and sympathy and compassion for people that were far from God. And as I, as I thought about that, I thought about my own calling. When I, when I was five is when I, I said yes to Jesus. I made the decision to follow Christ, really young age. My dad here on the front row led me to Christ. I remember coming to him and saying, Dad, I'm... Uh, as a little five-year-old, and I think of my daughter Kira saying something like this. I said, if I say the now I'll lay me down to sleep prayer, will that get me to heaven? You know, the now I'll lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And my dad said, no, son, you have to ask Christ to come into your life and forgive your sins. And so I knelt down right there in my house with my family and prayed to receive Christ. But it wasn't until about 14 years old that I surrendered everything to Christ. You know, Jesus was Lord, but I didn't fully embrace him as my Lord. He was my Savior, but I had those two disconnected, unfortunately. So at the age of 14, I remember hearing this message on blind Bartimaeus, how, you know, he came to Jesus and said, Have mercy on me, son of David. So I remember at the time where Mr. Reed was a teacher at the school, I remember going down to the altar and um, praying that, just surrendering my whole life. And I call it A4. I said, God, any time any place, any cost, anything, I'm willing to do it. So at the age of 14, God began to turn my heart, and he renewed the calling, but it was different. Instead of just a call to follow him as Savior, it was a calling kind of like Romans 12:1, where it says, I beseech you, my brethren, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And these were people who were already saved, but they weren't fully surrendering their all. And that's what God has to do to us. There's an initial call where you're like, okay, I need forgiveness. But then God knocks on your heart again and says, have you surrendered your all to me? And when we see in Matthew here, 
he, he had a really tough decision. Um, does he stay at his tax booth or does he follow Jesus for the unknown? And many of us are at that point in our lives, and especially if you're a younger person, you know, you look at your whole life ahead of you and you're like, well, I, I just want to have fun for the rest of my life. Doesn't follow Jesus mean you have no fun? How many of you have ever thought that before? I remember I used to think that. And what I realized is that was a lie of the enemy saying don't surrender because Jesus just wants to take your fun. But what I realized is you actually have more fun and you remember it the next day, right? You remember and you have the significance and you don't feel guilty about it. Some of you are laughing because you know what I'm talking about. So when you follow Jesus, it's to greater things. It's not to less things. So don't let the devil put this lie in your mind that if you follow Jesus, it's going to be bad. You will have challenges, you will have struggles, but in the midst of all that, you have peace. And peace is more valuable than any short-term thrill or pleasure. Amen. So if you look at tax collectors, a little background about them as I was researching. Some things I did not know is, one, in a lot of contexts, tax collectors couldn't even go to the local church. Did you guys realize that? They were so despised, they were kicked out of the synagogue, in many synagogues. Now, can you imagine if you had a certain job where you weren't welcome at church? Wouldn't that be bad? (laughs) You're not welcome here. Well, that's the way it was. Um, A tax collector couldn't even uh, testify in court. In a Jewish court, you couldn't even testify if you're a tax collector. And you were on the same level as prostitutes and adulterers and the whole list that that the tax collector. So Matthew, he had a shady past. And some of you are saying, why were tax collectors looked down upon so bad? Well, part of it is the Jewish people thought they were traitors. Because they worked for, does anybody know who they worked for? Rome, right? And Rome was kind of um, overseeing, like overlording over the Jewish people. So they were like the, the you know, the semi-slaves, if you will. Um, they had to pay taxes. They had to, you know, if someone, a soldier said, pick up your, pick up this burden and carry it, they had to do it. So in a way, they were like indentured servants to, to the Romans, and a second thing the Jewish people didn't like about tax collectors is they charged more than they should because they had to pay their cut to the Roman government and then many of the tax collectors became very wealthy because they would charge a lot. Now, how would you feel if, let's just say, if you, you know, made a certain amount of money and you were taxed like 50% or more of your income? How would that make you feel? Some of you are like, I'm already there. <laughs> doesn't feel too good, does it? So that's the way they felt. So Matthew had to decide, am I going to leave this lifestyle of having a lot of money, potentially, to follow Jesus for the unknown? And he was willing to do it. So as I say that, I'm wondering how many of us are just sitting there when Jesus says, come follow me. So any God-sized mission starts with the call to follow Jesus. Number two, a God-sized mission It attracts people who desperately need God. Look at verse 10. It says, Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, obviously Matthew's house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came down and sat with him and his disciples. I heard this story about this um, gentleman from Scotland that only had one leg. And he came to J. Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary in China, and said, I want to be a missionary. And Hudson Taylor looked at him and said, well, you only have one leg. How are you going to be a missionary? What's making you want to be a missionary? Isn't that going to be a little challenging? What's calling you to this? And he said, well, 
I see far too few people with two legs going, so I'm willing to step up with one leg. And he was accepted onto the mission field instantly. And I think a lot of times we have things that hold us back. And we realize that there's a world full of people out there who desperately need God. There's two types of people in the world. It's those who need God and realize it, and those who need God and don't realize it. The truth is we all desperately need God. And I want you to notice who showed up at Matthew's house. There was a gathering of tax collectors and sinners. Could you imagine if you did a Bible study in a place where the most unsavory people were there? Could you imagine God working in that place? And that's kind of what was happening. See, Matthew had just given his life to Christ, but his whole circle of friends were still unchurched, pagan, lost people. So when he invited his friends to meet Jesus, who did he invite? The unchurched, the lost people. But you know the thing about it is Jesus was right there with them. Because those are the people that Jesus had come to die for. The tax collectors, the sinners, and everybody else that didn't realize that they needed forgiveness. So I want you to to look at Matthew 28, and I have this on the screen. Jesus gave this as his great commission. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So what that's saying is as you go into the world, as you go into your jobs, many of you have told me you have jobs that you do not like, you work with people that don't treat you very kindly, bosses that are unfair and unjust, know that you're going in Christ's authority. And that gives you power. That gives you the ability to be in unsavory situations. And he says, because of this authority, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, whenever a person places their faith in Christ, they're now a part of being what God's a part of. This global mission to reach those all around the world. And he says, teaching them to observe all things that are commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Now, how many of you would say the Great Commission is a pretty, the biggest challenge you could ever get? Like, go reach the whole world. I don't know about you, but that that seems kind of intimidating. Well, let me give you something interesting. How many of you have ever enjoyed a bottle of Coca-Cola? Anybody? Everybody in here, right? Even as you see this picture on the screen, it makes your mouth salivate for an ice-refreshing Coca-Cola classic. Imagine all your friends are all around you, you're enjoying a Coke, and you're just hanging out. Some of you are sitting on your front porch in your rocking chair, uh, enjoying this ice-cold Coke, maybe a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I don't know. Some of you are getting hungry. It's getting close to lunchtime. But these statistics change throughout the years, but here's the most current statistics I could find. Approximately 94% of the world has heard of Coca-Cola. Can you believe that? About 94% of the entire world has heard of them. 72% of the world has seen a can of Coca-Cola or a bottle. It's a lot of people. And around half of the world has had a can or a bottle of ice-cold Coca-Cola. Or if you live in Mexico, hot. Whatever whatever it's served. And did you realize that Coca-Cola has only been around for about 130 years? So think about that. Coca-Cola, a beverage is worldwide famous, and people are enjoying it and experiencing it. And we have something called the gospel, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And how many people have heard about it? How many people have not? 
it's been said that if God entrusted Coca-Cola with the, the job of world, evangel, world evangelization, perhaps the whole world would have heard by now. They're doing such a good job getting their product out. Now, if this is a product that's here today, gone tomorrow, and ever, their mission is the whole world to experience a bottle of Coca-Cola, what would it look like if we had the same passion for Jesus? Something that's just not a product, it's a person. You guys tracking with me? A bottle of Coke has been tasted around the world by almost half the population. Isn't it time that we get the gospel out in such a way that people desire even more than this? You may be the only Jesus that the world sees. So the fact that Matthew was willing to invite people that were far from God to meet Jesus, I would dare to say there's people in Arden right now that don't know God, but if you invite them to a small group, if you invite them to your house, perhaps if you invite them to church, many of them will come just to, just to see. And if they encounter the true living God, their lives can be forever changed. Amen. So it begins with a call to follow Jesus. It attracts people who desperately need God, and which, by the way, we all desperately need God. Number three, it offends the religious. Look at verse 11. It says that when the Pharisees saw it, when they saw Jesus eating with unsavory people, they said to his disciples, I wonder why they didn't ask Jesus this. I mean, were they a little intimidated by Jesus? They asked his disciples and said, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The story is told of a pastor who was on his way to church. And the roads were blocked and he couldn't get to church. And the only way this pastor could get to church was ice skating on a frozen river. So he ice skated all the way up to church, sweating, trying not to get his suit all wet before church. And he arrived at church. I'm sure he was... Huffing and puffing, and he's like, i, I got to get in time to preach this sermon to these people. So he made it to church. That's a pretty nice, dapper-looking pastor there, huh? I don't, it's not the actual pastor, but you get the picture. So he's skating, he makes it to church, and after the service, his elders come to him and said, I cannot believe that you skated on the Lord's Day. How dare you? So they had, believe it or not, they had an elders meeting afterward. And they rebuked him for skating on the Lord's Day because in that time, now no one thinks of it, at that time it was unthinkable. So they had a meeting and the pastor gave his response. He said, well, it was either skate on a frozen river to church or not come at all. And one of the elders had a very inquisitive question. He said, well, did you enjoy it? And the pastor thought a moment and said, no, I really didn't. And they, they, they agreed that it wasn't really a sin since he didn't enjoy it. So, legalism, it exists and it's present. And I would define legalism as whenever you preach tradition as truth. Whenever you take stuff that's not in the Bible and make it as authoritative as the Bible, that's when you have legalism. So here you have Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees were like, don't you know that that's a no-no? Well, did they not read in the Old Testament that God is the God of the nations? That he wants every... You read through the book of Psalms and it's, he wants all the nations, the Gentiles, to praise him. Did they not read that part of the Bible? Well, see, the thing is about the Pharisees, they had compo- composed a list of approximately 613 laws. Can you imagine trying to keep 613 laws straight? I don't know about you, but I would probably stumble after the first 10. 613 laws. 
And what Jesus did later on in his ministry is he summarized every legitimate law ever given into love God and love others. He said the greatest commandment of all is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like it, which is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Because really, the intended purpose of the law is to bring us to Christ. It's not to save us. We are imperfect, so there's no law that can save us. The, the Bible tells us the reason why God set a law was to show us primarily that we needed a Savior. So the fact that they were caught up into the laws and not into the Savior, they had it all backwards. So it will offend the religious. So sometimes whenever you reach out to people and others don't understand why you do it, sometimes they'll be offended. Um, And the thing is, is as we reach out into the community more, there will be religious people who just don't get it. But we've got to understand, Arden first, we are on a mission to seeking to save those who desperately need God. And that's all of us, right? we just got to become aware of it. So sometimes a a God-sized mission, as we see from Jesus, will offend the religious. But are we trying to save the religious? Well, yeah. But we need to realize that God's got to work on them. And sometimes they're the hardest to to accept Christ. But he can work on them as well. Number four, a God-sized mission puts God's loyal love on display. Look back at verse 12 and 13. When Jesus heard that, He said to them, those who are well need not a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire to have mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. How many of you have ever heard of Borden's ice cream? Anybody ever had Borden's ice cream? Anybody ever use super glue? Okay, some of you have. Well, William Borden, this is the early 1900s, he was inheriting his family's fortunes, millions and millions of dollars for that time. And he was graduating from a school in Chicago, a high school, and I know uh, where's Madison, she just graduated. So imagine this graduation trip, his family having millions and millions of dollars said, I'm going to send you a trip around the world. You're going to travel through Europe, you're going to travel through the Middle East, through Asia. So they sent William on this and he was only 16 at the time. Can you imagine sending your 16-year-old by them around the world? So William starts traveling the world. And as he's traveling the world, God begins to speak to him. Because William, at an earlier age, had been saved through the gospel ministry of uh, Brother D.L. Moody. And he had accepted Christ. As he's traveling, he's seeing all these poor people. He's seeing all these people who are sick and in need. And instead of wanting to take over his family's business, he decides... God's calling me into the mission field. So he writes a, fan, a letter back as he's doing his travels back to his family at 16 and says, Dad, Mom, something I've got to tell you. I know you want me to take over the business, but God's calling me to be a missionary in China. And obviously his family just kind of flipped. Like, what? what? I mean, you're, you're, you're the inheritor of this multi-million dollar estate. And one of his friends made the statement that William's just going to throw his life away, throw all his potential away. So he goes back, and he graduates from Yale University. And then after he graduates from Yale, he goes to Princeton Divinity School. So, I mean, that's pretty Ivy League, right? Yale and Princeton. So at the age of 25, he decides, you know what? I've finished with school. It's time to fill the call. And I'm sure his parents along the way were probably thinking he's going to change his mind. 
Once he goes to college, he'll get his head back on straight. But sure enough, he decided, I'm going to go out. God's calling me to the mission field. So at the age of 25, he gets on a boat and starts to head to China. And along the way, he stops in Egypt. And in Egypt, he stops there because he wants to learn the Arabic language because he has a heart to see the Muslims come to Christ. So he's 25. Um, you know, he's giving up this multi-million, probably billion-dollar estate. And he's in Egypt. While he is there, he contacts spinal meningitis. And in that day and time, they didn't have really a lot of treatments. So within a month of him setting sail to the mission field, he dies. So here you have this young man who is willing to give up everything for a lifetime as a missionary. And now he's dead. So the reports come back to America. Almost every newspaper in America has this art, a different article about William. They said, you know, the, the heir apparent to the Borden estate has just died. And there were shock waves filled every newspaper. And I'm sure most Americans would say, what a waste, right? Gave his life up for something that he didn't get to do. But what God did is he took that, that horrible experience... And as young men and women around the United States read that article in the early 1900s, according to the article, thousands of them felt a call into the missions, into the ministry. So because of his death, many young adults and teenagers were inspired for a lifetime of ministry. And in his death, he inspired thousands to surrender to the mission field. So let me ask you, from an eternal perspective, was it a waste? I don't think so. And as I looked at the Borden Company, and you guys can Google it, look up on Wikipedia, but in recent years they've had financial downturn and they, they got sold, bought out by another company. So the Borden Company is no longer owned by the Borden family. It's bought out by another company. So from an eternal perspective, even the money, the wealth, it was bought out by another company. But what William did through his life, his story still lives on. Amen. A few observations from this text that I want to give to you is reached people, reached people. Reached people, reached people. You notice that Matthew was reached, and because he was reached, he wanted his friends to be reached. Do you remember when you first accepted Christ, the passion that you had, that you wanted all your friends to, to hear about God and share your faith, and you wanted them to come to church? What happened to that passion? Did you lose it along the way? Did you lose the excitement of what God was doing? Reach people, reach people. God's love is poured out to those who realize their needs for God's mercy. Jesus said it's not the righteous that need repentance, quote unquote, the people who think they're righteous. It's those who realize their need. And if you will realize your need for God, God is open and He's willing to receive you. God is more pleased by outpouring of love than our most religious talk. A lot of times in churches we're good at talking, but we're not really good at doing. You notice that we'll talk like, yeah, let's, let's do missions, let's do outreach, let's do this. And years and years later, we're still talking, but we're not really doing. What I love about this text is Matthew, he's not just talking about it. As soon as he gets saved, he's put to work, and he's inviting his friends to Christ. Something about the William Borden story that I want to give to you, a further illustration that really struck me, is as he, he, he died and his, the news go back to his parents, 
his Bible was given to his parents. And I want you guys, guys to get this. In his Bible, as his parents were reading it, whenever he made the commitment to give up the multi-million dollar estate for missions, he wrote these two words in his Bible, no reserve. No reserve. So his parents read that and like, wow, that's unbelievable. Along the way, his dad said, William, anytime you want to come back to the estate, there's always going to be a job. We always have that corner office for you. And later on, his father changed his mind because he realized his son wasn't coming back. And his father, in a moment of anger or a moment of despair, we don't know what he was feeling, but he said, you can never come back and work for me. He was just really upset. So William wrote this word in his Bible, no retreat. I've already decided to follow Jesus. I'm not going back. And whenever he died, just within weeks before his death, he wrote, no regret. So can you believe that? No reserve, no retreat, no regret. So I want you to look at the screen. This is something by Pastor Rick Warren I think is really good. As we talk about loving others and reaching our community. He says, a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission will produce great Christians and a great church. So let's break that down. A great commitment to the great commandment. What is the great commandment? To love God and love others. Truly love people. And out of that love, God sends you on a mission to reach out to the world. If you, out of motivated, out of heart of love, reach out to those around you, you'll become great in the sight of God, and the church will become a mighty force in God's kingdom. Amen? But I want to give you the order it's important if you do the great commission without the great commandment that that can produce you just doing it because you have to but if you start with the heart of love that love will motivate you to want to reach people and it will all flow out of that amen so just as matthew joined jesus on a mission to reach out to the unreached you too can do that kind of a creative idea i got this concept out of orlando there's a church called northland as I was visiting down there, they, they do something called Matthew parties, basically from this text. And what it is, is, you know, most people have a place that you can host people. Many of you enjoy, I know Betty Moody, people are house every day. Uh, most people enjoy hosting people. So what Matthew party is, is you invite your neighbors and your friends who don't go to church, and you love on them, and then you say something like, next week, I want you to come to church with me. Or next week I'm doing a Bible study here in the house. So it's a party with a purpose. And I thought that was just a great application of this text. Of inviting your lost friends, those who don't know Christ. And they see that you're not as strange as they thought you were once they come in your house. And once they eat mama's good cooking, then they realize, these people are nice. They even cook well. Then sometimes they're more open and receptive to God's love. So that's just a thought. Some of you, out of application, may want to throw a Matthew party. So if you do, I'm coming over, eating your food. (laughs) So today I want to kind of introduce our revised mission statement. It's something that the church has been working on Wednesday nights. The missions team has cooperated um, in our leadership retreat. Um, we, we, We kind of finalized this. But this is basically to summarize what a church is about. Basically, a mission statement is... The Great Commission and the Great Commandment, just summarized in easy to understand words. So it's like this. Our mission is to lead ordinary people into extraordinary life in Christ. So think about that. How many of us are ordinary? Everybody, right? But whenever ordinary people are invited to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, 
their ordinary becomes extraordinary. So think about this world. Imagine if William decided not to follow Christ, enjoy all the money, multi-millions, travel the world all of his life. Today, would we really be talking about him, what he did? But because he was willing to give up that for something far greater, from an eternal perspective, his story still matters. And the same is true for your story. You can live for this world. There's nothing wrong with having things as long as the things don't have you. I mean, God blesses some of you with nice things. But here's the point. If you go after materialism, if you go after thrills and pleasure, in the end of life, it's gone. You can't take it with you. Mr. Reed would tell you today, if he was here, um, and I hope the Lord allows him to hear this message from heaven. I actually said a prayer, God, if you can let him hear the sermon, let him hear it. Um, But he would tell you, he didn't leave this world with very much. But one thing he did leave the world with people that he poured his life into. And even though he's with the Lord, I'm one of the people that he poured into as a high school student. And there's many others. The same can be true of your life. Do you want to leave a legacy that you made a lot of money? You know, someone once asked a guy, it was a funeral, and I heard the story about this guy. He looked over at, at, at his friend and said, how much did you leave behind? How much did you leave and the friend said, everything. It doesn't matter how much you leave behind because you're going to leave it all behind, right? But what you do for Christ is the only thing that you can send on ahead for eternity. So how do we do this? I wanted to come up with a simple way for us to describe what church life should be like. And we summarize it into B3s. You'll see the t-shirts coming around. Does anybody know what it, what it is? Belong, believe, and become. And some people will say, why do you have belong before belief? I mean, what, what is that? Well, if you look at the Gospels, Jesus, just like in the story we read today, he allowed people to feel welcome even before they believed in him. He met people just where they were, but he presented his love and his truth to them. So belonging means this, that you're welcome just as you are. So in Arden First, people will come through this door that aren't Christians, and that's great. We, we, we say you belong here. Whenever people go to a Sunday school class or a small group, they should feel like they belong. But believing is not just salvation. That's the beginning point. I want you to, instead of seeing a straight line, I want you to see a circle. Believing is whatever God's Word says. When you believe it, God begins to develop you. And you begin to grow. And then you begin to become. So kind of the process in everything in life, whether you've been a Christian a few days or 50 years... In every context in the church, you should feel like you belong. You should feel welcome. How many of you have ever been in a church where you didn't feel welcome? How, how fun is that? No one said hello. That shouldn't be. So you belong. And then as you belong, you hear God's truth in the context of a loving environment. Then you believe God's word. And as you apply God's word, whatever that is, whether it's for salvation, whether it's for strength, whether you're discouraged and you, you believe that God's going to help you through it, then you become what God's Word says you'll become. And here's how we say it out of the context of the great commandment to love God. Whenever you belong, you should feel the love. Somebody say, feel the love. Whenever you believe, that's when you receive the love. But when you become, you live the love. You live it out. So feel the love, receive the love, live the love. So... When people say, what is Arden First about? Some of you may be able to memorize their mission statement to lead ordinary people into 
extraordinary life in Christ. Some of you may not memorize that, but some of you can remember B3, belong, believe, and become. And this is true in everything in life. In the choir over here, they love the choir, not just because Elaine and Stephen are so great, but they feel like they belong. They belong to a group. They feel welcome. And they believe as they're singing God's word, it's helping them grow. And then all of a sudden, they're becoming more and more like Christ. I often say we're not just human beings, we're human becomings. Becoming more and more like Christ every day. So I want to leave you guys with this thought. If you look on your listening guide, your take-home truth. Reached people reach people. You are on a mission from God to reach those far from Christ. If you look at the stats in this area, and uh, we have Brother Steve Harris who works with North Carolina Baptist. He's going to present some research to us on a Wednesday night. But I think the statistics are about 60 to 70% of, of South Asheville, Arden don't go to church anywhere. Now think about that. That's a big number. So our mission is not just Arden first, but working with all the churches, all Bible-believing churches to help reach this community. And as we do so, we can have a greater impact. So here's some family talk questions for you to talk about as you go to lunch. What do you think of our new mission statement? Ordinary people, extraordinary life. What does that mean to you? And reach people, reach people. What are we doing? What are you doing to reach those far from God? Are you willing to throw a party with a purpose? Are you willing to get uncomfortable around people that you don't feel comfortable around, the tax collectors and sinners of society? Are you willing to carry on a conversation with them? Reach people, reach people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text in Matthew. And God, uh, it was a challenge this week, um, losing a friend and a mentor. But I thank you that he left me something behind. That even if you don't leave worldly wealth behind, even if you didn't have a nice house or a nice car, you can leave a legacy behind that you followed Jesus and you loved him and you grew and developed. And Lord, I thank you I saw that in my friend, Mr. Reed, that he was such an amazing person to begin with, but over the years, you, you, you just seasoned him with time. And I pray that's true of all of us, that you will develop and cultivate us. Father, right now, I just pray blessings on each and every one here. Right now, I know there's some here, God, that are struggling. They have family members that just are losing control. Father, they have people in their lives that are just hurting. And right now, I ask and pray that you would help them. Right now, as I pray, no one looking around, if there be one that hasn't accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, if you would just reach out to God, if you believe that Jesus loves you so much, that he died on a cruel and rugged cross for you and he rose again on the third day. He did it because he loved you. If you're willing to accept Jesus as your Lord, your God, and your Savior, just pray a prayer of faith in your own words, something like, Dear God, I need to receive you into my life. I ask and pray that you would forgive me where I've fallen short of you. I ask and pray, Jesus, that you would step out of heaven and into my heart. I make you my Lord and Savior. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, please come see me after the service. I'd love to talk with you. Father, thank you that you've given us a place where we can belong, believe, and become more like Jesus. 
I pray that the best days at Arden First are not behind us, but ahead of us. And I pray the best days for everyone in this audience are not behind them, but ahead of them too. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.